You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, good morning, church. My name is Carlos. I'm one of the elders here at First Family Church. I also lead our Bondurant campus. I'm the campus pastor there. For those of you who are new or maybe do not know me, it's been, it's been close to a year since I've been here. So, in fact, I don't think I've been able to teach with the, the renovation of the auditorium, so it's been a while. So, glad to be here, glad to uh, share the Word of God with you this morning. I am excited for our passage, and I trust that uh, you've been enjoying our study in First Samuel. Uh, before we get started, though, I just wanted to say a word of thanks for those of you who participated in our uh, fundraiser that we did for our trip to Honduras uh, this, I think it was in December or November, somewhere around there. Those of you who came and participated in that, uh, our trip just took place in January. It was a success. Uh, we did more work than they anticipated, and they were very excited uh, as we went to do some uh, construction for the Bible Institute I teach at. So thank you. Uh, really appreciate that. About 10 of us went. Uh, we did a lot of work and a lot of fellowship, and it was a good time. So, well, as we begin, there's something that I want to just remind you of, and it's this. That God, our creator, the one who dwells in inapproachable light, the one whom angels surround and say, holy, 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 is going to speak this morning. He has something to say to us this morning. And I can say that with confidence because every time God's word is taught and is heard, God speaks. So it's with that mindset, let us engage our minds and our hearts to hear the word of God. Amen? Father, you will speak and we want to listen. May you have your way in us. May your spirit humble us. May he teach us. May he guide us. And may it be for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we moved to Iowa in uh, 2010 from Arizona, uh, we leased a house in Clive for about two years. Um, it was a really nice home. It's a five-bedroom, a three-car garage, finished basement. And I remember when we were looking for a place and I visited it, the house, I was impressed. It was, it was nice, had a nice appeal, was in a nice neighborhood. Everything on the outside, from what I can tell, looked great. And so the owner and I came to terms, and we moved in a few months later. Now, even though, though the house was impressive to look at, and um, I thought it was going to be a great home, uh, it took a few months until we realized that it had some internal problems. Uh, for one, the walls were very poorly insulated, and every time it either got hot or cold, you could feel heat or cold coming from the wall and drafts through the windows. And as you know, my, what that does is your utilities spike because of that. And, you know, being from Arizona, we're used to high utility bills. Your AC runs continuously for about six months of the year. And so we were no stranger to high utility bills, but this house was a little bit worse. Uh, needless to say, those two years, we spent a lot of money on utilities. Then there was the dryer vent. There actually wasn't one. <laughs> 
even though there was a place to connect the dryer hose into the wall, and I thought it vented out into the outside, it actually just went into the wall, uh, had no outlet, and uh, could have started a fire. Luckily, our dryer had a sensor, and it would stop heating, and it stopped working, and that's how we found out. Called a repairman, hey, something's wrong with our dryer, and he comes like, hey, there's nothing wrong with your dryer. You don't have a vent, and your dryer did what it's supposed to, and it stopped heating up, lest it start a fire. Um, there's nothing wrong with the dryer, even though I paid like 100 bucks for him to come and repair it, just to tell me there was no vent. <laughs> then there was the basement. The sump flooded. Twice. Not fun. One time it happened on Sunday, right before we were going to ch- come to church, and I go downstairs to check the lights, make sure they're off, and squish, squish, and yeah. Apparently, one of the drain pipes in the yard that goes out to the city sewer system was uh, broken, and it backed up. And I guess the house wasn't used to having as many people live there because usually only two people did, and it flooded while we were there. Not fun. You see, that outer appearance of something isn't everything. Most of the time, it's what's on the inside that matters, not just what's on the outside. Um, and in today's passage of First Samuel we will witness the anointing of Israel's first king, King Saul. And as we will read from the text, King Saul was an impressive man. He had physical stature. He was from the right family, we will see. But unfortunately, we will see as the narrative progresses in the coming weeks, he didn't have the inner character nor the godliness to make a good and godly king And Israel was unable to recognize that. Even though you'll see some glimpses of it here in this passage this morning, because of their sin, they weren't able to see the warning signs. So if you're not already there, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9 for this morning's message. 1 Samuel chapter 9, as we look at Saul, a king after man's own image. And I will do my best to address any questions you may have. You can text those in. And we'll address those at the end. 1 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. And here's where we're going to see that the people get their king that they've been asking for. The people get their king. There's a man, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalishah, and they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he, has, he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says, says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us. The way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, 
What will we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go see, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So what we see so far is that this man Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Kish, he was an attractive man. He was a tall man. He looked the part. Everyone was, you will see, impressed by his stature. It also says that he came from a wealthy and influential family. Literally, the Hebrew says that he was a powerful man of wealth. It's a prominent family. So he's good looking. He's got physical stature. He's from a rich family. But we also get a little bit of insight into Saul, and I think this is some foreshadowing, kind of telling us of things to come later on in the narrative, that Saul is, doesn't seem to be spiritually sensitive and doesn't seem to really have any leadership qualities. I mean, Samuel, what we've said, heard so far in the narrative is that Samuel is known throughout the land of Israel and that everything he says comes true. Even his servant knows that. He's a confirmed prophet of the Lord, and Saul doesn't even know who he is, doesn't know where he lives. And yet, it seems, though, as, you, as we read the narrative, the rest of the nation knows he's from Ramon. That's where he lives, and he judges Israel, and he settles disputes for the people, and Saul doesn't, he's not aware of that. Nor was it Saul's idea to go and seek out Samuel. His servant does. Again, it's, you're going to see Saul kind of leads that way too. Doesn't know what to do, doesn't take the lead, but allows others to influence him and then almost follows. So not being able to find the donkeys, which were a form of wealth, it's another sign that he was from a wealthy family. Not knowing what to do, the servant says, hey, let's go find Samuel. Let's bring him, I have some money, we'll give him. Saul goes, okay, let's go. Let's look and see what happens next. Look at verse 11. As I went up the hill to the city, they met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat for all the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall Save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is is who shall rule my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, those lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. They have been found. For who is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not you 
in all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man, brought him into the hall, gave him a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you may eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. When he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may may make known to you the word of God. Quite a long passage, but it kind of tells us what's going on at this point. By the way, remember, Israel is waiting for a king, right? At the end of last week's passage, they are told that they will be given a king as they requested, and Samuel the prophet says, go to your house and let's wait to see whom the Lord has chosen. So there, there is somewhat of an anticipation here within the nation. They're waiting for their king. And here we see the story as to how God chooses the king. Now, Samuel had already been told the day before that Saul would come. He'll be looking for donkeys, and it's, this is the man out of Benjamin whom I have chosen to lead my people. Saul seems to be shocked that Samuel would talk to him this way, give him a special place to sit and offer him the choicest piece of meat. And Saul's like, what what did I do to deserve this? And Samuel's hinting at, this is a gift and you will be recognized here shortly. And it seems as though Saul is like, I don't really get what's going on. Hey, Saul, guess what? We're waiting for a king. You should probably stop and think that something significant is happening right now. But he seems to be clueless. And the chapter ends, as we read, with Samuel telling Saul, Hey, I have a a message from the Lord for you. Tell your servant to go. I have something private to tell you. I need to tell you something, Saul, that the Lord has sent me to tell you. And then we pick it up in chapter 10. Look what it says. Look at verse 1. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And it shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by the Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelah or Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you, and they will give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. 
After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Verse 9. When he turned his way back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously, how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they could not be found, we sent to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, Well, he, he, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken didn't tell him anything. Here we see Saul, the Benjamite, the one who looks the part, the one who's from a wealthy family, is anointed as king. Samuel pours oil over his head and informs him, you are the one God has chosen to lead his people Israel. You are the answer to the request that the people have given the Lord. You are to be the king, and God has chosen you to be king over his people. And we see this this confirmation of the anointing with the spirit comes upon Saul. It says that the Lord gives him a new heart and the Spirit rushes upon him and, and he's prophesying and that is confirmation. Hey, you're the one chosen. You're the one given the task. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but essentially this, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, we shouldn't view that as you and I now have the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's not what's going on here because that didn't happen until the New Testament times where the Holy Spirit indwelt every saint or believer. What is going on here is what's known as either the kingly blessing of the Spirit or the deliverer's anointing of the Spirit, right? We read about in Psalm 51 that David said, as he's confessing his sin, at the time he's king, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, don't take it away from me like you did Saul, that kingly blessing. That's what's going on in Saul. We also see it in the book of Judges where the Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon, right, and enables him to deliver the people. That's what's going on here, and it is an anointing of the Spirit that enables uh, King Saul to rule and to lead the people and to deliver God's people, right? Samuel's uncle finds out what's going on. Hey, what happened? Well, the donkeys have been found, and we saw Samuel. He told us, and well, what else happened? And there's something behind that question. Hey, we're all waiting for a king, and all of a sudden you have this special meeting with with Samuel, and you had a feast, and he gave you a place to sit. I mean, what else did he say? Saul doesn't say anything. Kind of interesting. And then the end of the chapter, look what happens after that, where they present Saul to the people. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Listen to this. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near to it by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him... He could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. They get their king. What they've been waiting for. Give us a king like the nation's. You know, sometimes we need to be careful what we ask for. Sometimes the Lord will give it. Notice how they're called to Mizpah. It, it, they're almost like clueless as to, wait a minute, this is the place where there was revival years before, where we had been sinning and we repented and there was great revival at Mizpah. They don't seem to recognize that. It doesn't appear that Saul, either he doesn't believe the Lord is choosing him to be king or... For whatever reason, he's still timid. I mean, everyone knows what's going on here. Everyone's waiting for this event. Everyone's waiting to see who's going to be king. And all the tribes come together with their leaders. And Saul should be there among them, among his brothers. They choose Benjamin. They choose his father's house. And they choose him. And where is he? He's with the baggage. With the baggage. Which is fascinating because... The people are still excited. They see, but he's, man, he looks the part though. Look at this guy. He's taller than everybody. This is a king. This is the one we want to follow. But not everybody was excited about Saul, right? Some people rejected him. It could be this guy who was hiding in the baggage. He's gonna, I don't think this guy's going to lead us. Doesn't say, but maybe that's why they were saying that. However, we read from the narrative that it's not as though God is setting up Saul for failure. I mean, what has the Lord already done for Saul in this passage? He's given him his spirit. He's given him men of valor. So, it, in a, I mean, God is really setting him up for success. Everything that he needs. God, even though giving the people what they ask for, is still gracious. Unfortunately, the people, I don't know if you caught it, they didn't care that they were rejecting the Lord. This is the second time they've been told that. We saw that last week. We see it again this week. Hey, before this happens, I need to remind you that what you have asked for is a rejection of God as your king. And if you remember, the reason why in last week's passage, 
The reason why they were rejecting God was because of their idolatry, because of their persistent sin, going after the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They were living in idolatry. They had been called to the carpet once. They didn't do anything about it. They've been called to the carpet again. They still don't care. I mean, there's no reaction to that. Samuel is very clear. You are rejecting the Lord. And they're like, so where's the king? Where's the king? They didn't care. You know, in this story, in this history, in this narrative, there are three effects of Israel's sin that we can observe. They're living in sin. And God has called them to repentance. He has rebuked them, but they don't repent. They don't confess. And I believe there's three effects of sin that I want to draw your attention to so that we can learn from their failure. And the first is this. Sin has a deceitful effect. Sin has a deceitful effect. I mean, they're, they're persistent in their idolatry. They're not sensitive to the Lord's rebuke. They don't care that they're falling after the false gods. There is no repentance. There's no remorse. And they're unable to see what's going on. Sin is deceiving them. They completely ignore some of the signs that they see in Saul, and all they care about is what's on the outside. Man, he looks good. I mean, look at him. He's impressive. I could follow that guy. He looks the part. He looks like one of the kings of the nations. Hey, and by the way, he comes from a fairly prominent, wealthy family. This is good. He's the king. Never mind if you just study this history of Israel in this time period, in the book of Judges, this guy comes from the tribe of Benjamin, not a stellar tribe. Go read Judges. Known for mass immorality and almost was wiped out. They don't care. He looks the part. Everything we read about in the narrative, and we're going to see it played out, all this foreshadowing of what kind of man this guy is, there's nothing that... that engenders him to be a leader or, or should think like, yeah, man, did you, man, he just took charge, he got up there. I mean, he, didn't, he couldn't find the donkey, but, but he knew what to do and, and he knew Samuel was there and he was sensitive. There's nothing like that at all. He just looks good and he's wealthy. And the people living in sin are deceived by sin and they can't recognize it. They're more impressed on what's on the outside. Don't even consider what's on the inside. Right? We're not told that, like David, Saul has a man or is a man after God's own heart. Nothing like that. They don't even care. They don't even ask. By the way, the request for a king wasn't sinful. It's why they asked for a king, how they did it. Right? The, the law had given provision to have a king. In fact, if they were going to do it correctly, they should have said, Lord, we are being sinful. We need someone to deliver us. Give us a king who would lead us to obey you to be faithful, one after your own heart. That would have been the right way to ask, but they didn't. All they care about, we need a king to fight our battles. In other words, we need a king to stop the plundering of our property. When the Philistines and the Ammonites, when they come in and they steal our, our, our slaves and they take our property, we need someone to protect us from that. By the way, the Lord had already promised, if you obey me, I'll take care of all that. 
I will bless you. Everyone will see the blessing upon you. I will provide for you. I will give you more than you need and all the nations will marvel at this people who follows the Lord. He'd already promised that. But they didn't want to obey. But they still wanted what God said he would give. So they thought the way out was to get a king like the nation. Because by the way, that's what they get and that's how they prosper. It's their king who delivers them. Well, they get a king They get what they want, but we're going to see their spiritual condition, which deceived them, is going to lead to disaster. Everything appeared to be fine on the outside, and yet it was going to lead to calamity. Sin is deceitful. You know, sin promises a lot, but delivers little. Sin entices us with fulfillment, with joy, with peace, with pleasure. And you know what? Let's just be honest. For a season, it is. It is. That's why it's enticing. But in the end, it'll lead to disaster. In the end, it will deceive us. In the end, what it does is it compels us to be driven by our passions, by our feelings, by our circumstances, rather than by what is true. People, you are rejecting the Lord. Yeah, I don't really care about that. I just want my stuff. I want what I feel. I want what I, what I crave. I don't care about my sin. And pretty soon, you're driven by passions rather than truth. Driven by emotion rather than by God. Sin. This is something we need to understand about sin. It is deceitful. It's it's a perversion. It's a lie. Whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whether it's fear, whether it's greed, whatever it is, whatever you we live for, amassing wealth, not that that's sinful, but if that's what we live for, It will deceive you into thinking like that's what life is all about. Or it'll deceive you into thinking, hey, all that matters is how you look and appear to other people. Whether you're a student here in this room or whether you're an adult, right? Our world is impressed by the outward appearance of things. And we are tempted to present ourselves to look well. Don't be deceived by that. What matters most is the heart. Thankfully, I mean, it makes me think about this. Those of you who are maybe looking to get married, most of the time we're more concerned about how that person looks rather than who they are on the inside. Let me tell you something. True beauty is what who someone who someone is on the inside is their heart in the hand of God, not what they look like. Not that that's unimportant or sinful, but what matters more? Sin will deceive us into thinking it's more about outward appearance and how we. appear to other people. And we see the people are deceived. Sin promises the world but delivers little. We also see, secondly, that sin has a delayed effect. So the people are in this process. They're living in their sin. They don't repent. And they don't see the immediate effects of what's going on. They're blind to the fact that it's because of their sin that they can't recognize godly counsel and godly rebuke. They have no idea. That didn't happen overnight. It, it just it took time, right? It hardened their heart. Second time, I mean, you would think that they would stop and say, you know what? 
Samuel's never been wrong. Every time he comes and speaks the word of God to us and prophesies, everything he says comes true. Maybe we should stop and think about this thing about us being disobedient and rejecting the Lord. Maybe, hey, you know what, guys? Let's put this on pause. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's figure out what's going on. They don't even care. Their, their, their heart is hardened at this point. And that took, it, it, does, it, it takes time, but it happened. The sin they're committing here by rejecting the Lord again, we're going to see in the narrative that they will pay for this decision. Saul's reign is a tragic reign. He was a foolish ruler. He is exactly what they asked for. He's a king just like all the other nations. Selfish, prideful, belligerent, ungodly, unsubmissive to the Lord. They will pay for this. I mean, this ability to not understand godly counsel, what does the book tell us? Psalm 1 says, if you delight in God and in his word and you meditate on it and you follow it and you obey it, you think about it and you walk in it, what does it say? You'll be blessed. You'll have whatever you need and everything you do, you will prosper. When you submit to sin... There is this effect that happens that when good, godly, wise counsel comes to you, you won't even be able to recognize it. You won't value it. And what's the end result? You won't be blessed. You won't prosper. Oh, you may prosper, quote, unquote, be blessed by the world's definition, but not by God's. Right? Remember the rich man with all the grain had so much? What did he say? I just need to build more barns so I can store all my stuff and live a life of ease. And God says, you fool. That's not what life's all about. Today, your life is required of you. Who's going to own what all you had? Sin will deceive us, and the effect of it is our hearts will be hardened like Israel, and eventually they will pay the consequences. Sinful decisions lead to consequences, some temporal, some eternal. Well, you know, is my pride really that much of a problem? Is my anger, is it really that bad of an issue? I mean, I, after all, I, I mostly obey and mostly follow, and I do a lot of good things. This is just one area of my life that, you know, it's, I mean, God's gracious, right? I mean, he understands. I mean, he's kind. I mean, do I really need to address these issues? You may not see it immediately, but there will be consequences by not repenting of our own sin. It's just a few clicks, just a few views. Does it really matter what I'm looking at? I mean, it didn't, no one really got hurt. I mean, I have a hard time admitting that I'm wrong, but, you know, is that a big deal? I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice gal. I mean, I help other people. I have a hard time forgiving others, but, you know, it hurt. And I mean, that's pride. That's stubbornness. That's a hard heart. And eventually we will pay the consequences of that. Broken relationships. A disconnection with God. By the way, do you ever find yourself in a place as you walk with the Lord that you're that your journey with God is somewhat stale or 
kind of, well, it's just kind of lukewarm right now. Let me tell you something. Just stop and think about this. If that ever happens to you, stop and ask yourself, okay, who is God? Okay, he is the creator. He is the fount of all that exists, all that is good. He is holy. He is happy. I find joy in him. I find peace. I find contentment in him. He, Jesus says, I will give you the wellspring that, that overflows with life, that there is joy and contentment as you walk with me. And yet my walk seems to be a little lukewarm or stagnant. Okay, there's only two answers to that. God is a liar or we're living in sin. What do you think it is? It's sin. Now, well, Carl, what if I don't know what sin it is? Trust me, ask the Lord and he will tell you. He will tell you. If there be any wicked way in me, O oh God, please make it known to me. Restore to me the joy of the salvation you've given me, the relationship that I have, so that I might walk with you in contentment, satisfaction. Teach me to forsake my sin. Enable me to repent. Sin has a delayed effect. By the way, parents, this is something that we as parents should be teaching our kids. You know, teaching them to obey us and to do the right thing and to follow Jesus isn't just behavior modification. It isn't just so they wouldn't be a pain in the butt when we go to the store. I mean, that's actually kind of nice, but what are we after here? You tell your kids, listen, sin is deceiving. It promises everything. But once you follow and give into it and you sin, you'll be chasing that pleasure the rest of your life and never really be able to get it. It's deceitful. It's like trying to catch smoke. You can't do it. And eventually you're gonna, there's going to be some effects to it. It may not happen immediately. No one saw that you lied or stole or did that thing where no one was there. But there will be an effect to that sin. Right? This is something that we learn not only to obey, but we should also be teaching our children. Sin is deceitful, and its effects can be delayed. And one of those effects, thirdly, is that sin has a deadly effect. Where does this lead to? I mean, we will see with Israel, there is temporal judgment upon the nation, some death. They have to deal, I mean, Saul rules for 40 years, and he rules just like a king of the nations. Selfishly, pridefully, arrogantly, foolishly, and they pay the price for their request. You see, sin and its deadly effect, this is, I mean, you can probably say it another way, but this is how I would say it. First, it leads to discontent. Sin promises the world and its pleasures are for a season, they're passing, but they're for a time, and when we follow it, we give into it, we enjoy it, and then comes the effects, the consequences, and then eventually, your sin will not satisfy That, those parties you used to love to go to, that wealth you used to love to amass, 
That position that you took great pride in, that you chased after, and it consumed you. All of a sudden, you have it, and you're not content. You have everything your heart desired. That relationship, that woman, that man, whoever it is. It was illicit, it was fun, it was pleasurable. But all of a sudden, I've enjoyed it, I've given into it, I've committed the sin, and I still don't have satisfaction. You're on the path. The deadly path. Never be satisfied, never content. It will lead then to despair. You will find no joy, you will find no peace. You may learn to mask it, but in your heart of hearts you will know. Sin doesn't deliver what it promises. It always leaves us wanting. Because it's a perversion. It's a lie. Children of Israel couldn't even see that. They were blind to it. And eventually, where does it lead? It leads to death. It leads to death. It leads to judgment. It leads to wrath. It leads to torment. It leads to pain and suffering. By the hand of Almighty God. Sin is deadly. And by the way, when our sin doesn't bother us, when we can be rebuked by the word of God and we don't even care, all we care about what is we want and what we feel and, and our passions and our situation, and it doesn't bother us, that's not a good thing. Because all those whom God has chosen to be his sons and daughters will be bothered by their sin eventually. But if it never bothers us, it may be because we're not his. Sin is deadly. It will lead to judgment. It will bear the fruit of death. But you know what? It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Even when we're far gone and we've hardened our hearts and we feel the effects of our sin and we've been deceived by it and you're sitting here today, it's not too late to do something about it. In other words, God, remember I told you, God will speak today and he is speaking today and he's saying, if you are living in persistent sin and you've ignored it and it's deceived you and it's hardened your heart, today is the day to repent and give that over to the Lord and say, forgive me. I've offended you. I've ignored you. I have fulfilled all my heart's desires and I've cast you aside. Forgive me because of Christ. Help me. Change me. Make me whole again. And you know what, brothers and sisters? He will. You know what's fascinating about this passage? with this stubborn mindset that his people have as they persist in their sin, did you catch that he still calls them his people? He still calls them his heritage. He still says, I will deliver them from their enemies. Even though they've rejected me, even though that they've forsaken me, I am gracious and I will still care for my people. You know, sometimes we think that the Old Testament is like all wrath and judgment, God's a meanie, right? 
We use phrases like, man, dude, that guy went Old Testament, and usually he beat somebody up or whatever. And we think God is that way in the Old Testament. Let me tell you something. God is gracious. God is willing to forgive. God is willing to receive you when we repent. If you've never done that, today maybe is the day. Stop living the lie. Stop believing the deceitfulness of sin. Stop living in its effects and ask God to cleanse you, change you, and forgive you. Some of you, I hope most of you, you understand this, you believe it, you obey it, and you're like, man, I'm fighting. Hopefully this is an encouragement. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Keep, keep forsaking. Keep following. Keep obeying. Keep growing. When you sin, you, re- you repent, you get back on. I hope this is a reminder to you that it's worth it and that the alternative is disaster. Right? We grow weary at times fighting sin. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's hard. It's difficult. Hopefully this is an encouragement, like, but it's worth it. I believe God. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to obey him. Yeah, I still sin, but Jesus paid for it, and I confess it when I do, and I keep going. Don't give in. It's tragic when I talk to men or women, and, they just, and, and I've heard this, and it breaks my heart when you hear them say, I'm, I'm just tired of fighting it, the urges. I'm just tired. I just want to give in. This is who I am. This is what I feel. It's so powerful, and I just I can't help it. That is so tragic. And I, and I plead with them, no, don't give up. Fight. Reject. Embrace. Submit. And God will accept you. Amen? So what we see here in summary is that the full effect of our sin never looks ugly initially. But ultimately, it shows itself to be the monster God warned us about. You can take that to the bank. God never lies. He always tells the truth. And as we look at 1 Samuel, we're going to see this happen. We're going we're gonna to be reading through, and there's a lot to learn from this narrative about the effects of sin. And you're going to see, yep, that's true. Ryan, did we get any questions? Okay. Either you just weren't interested or I'm thorough. I don't know what it is. As, <laughs> as the band comes forward, and as we get ready for a time of remembrance and honoring the Lord at his table. I want to leave you with this thought. You know, the reason why we do this every week, that we remember the gospel, this is why. It's because we want to be obedient to Jesus' command and we understand that the gospel is centered to everything that we do. The good news isn't just that we can be forgiven, even though that's amazing. The good news isn't just that we don't have to go to hell. Thank God for that. The good news is that the power of the cross is such that it can transform us from within. And we can be a new creation. We can be a new person. And you know what that means? You know why God is making us into the image of his son? I don't know if you ever thought about this. And this is what the cross accomplished. 
This is what we live now. The reason we're being made into his image and one day will dawn upon ourselves glory is so that we can have unimpeded, uninterrupted fellowship with God who is the Lord of glory. That's what the cross did. And so, if there's sin you need to confess, brother or sister, please do it. I beg you, please be reconciled to God. If there's no known sin in your life, but you like, you know, Carl, that's a good reminder, then maybe just take the time and, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that I understand what I just learned and had been reminded of in 1 Samuel. Encourage me to stay on the path. Thank you for Jesus who paved the way.